you please take your Bibles and turn with me in the written Word of God to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 11 through 24. I want to begin our reading in verse 5 to remind us of the context within which these words come. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, indeed you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. And know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who rob, you have, uh, who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Let's pray. Father, how we need the power of the Holy Spirit, both as I preach and as your people hear. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, there is a timeless principle of justice that is in place. And that principle of justice is that no one is to be convicted of a sin or of a crime simply by one witness, the testimony of only one witness. Because the reality is a witness is not impartial. That witness may have an agenda. They may be lying when they accuse someone else of a crime, because they envy the person that they're accusing, or they have some secret agenda in their own heart that causes them to accuse them. And so to guard the innocent from false accusations, we shouldn't live in a cancel culture, should we? It shouldn't be a cancel culture that says one person said so, so therefore it's right. No, instead, there must be corroborating witnesses who come alongside to establish whether the person really is guilty of the thing they've been accused of or whether or not they're innocent of it. 
In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we have 64 verses in which Paul is seeking to persuade you and me that we are indeed guilty before God. We have sinned against him, we've broken his law, and we have all sinned against our fellow man. And he's showing us that because of that, you are worthy of eternal condemnation suffered in the fires of hell. And that there is no one among all of humanity who is an exception to the rule. And so what he's doing here is he's calling witnesses to the witness stand, as it were, to speak out against us. And he's already, by the time we get to these verses I've read this morning, he's already called his first witness. And that first witness against you is the witness of creation. Creation by itself, even for cultures who've never had the Bible translated into their language, who've never had a missionary preach the gospel to them, even those people, they have the witness of creation. Creation is enough by itself to testify sufficiently to every man there is a God and to tell him what that God is like and that that God is worthy of our worship. He is entitled to our thanksgiving because everything we have is a gift from him and he's worthy of being obeyed and that you and I have a moral obligation to obey him. But what do men do when they see and hear God's speaking voice, as it were, in creation? Do they suddenly fall on their faces and begin to worship him? No, they do not. Instead, the Bible says our nature is to suppress it, to hold it down, to deny what is so clear in front of us. Because creation points to the fact there's a creator, but instead we say, no, I'm not going to give him the glory he deserves. I'm not going to render to him the thanks that he's entitled to. And I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to do what I want to do. And not only that, but it is our nature to look for other things to worship besides God. Let's go worship the creature rather than the creator. Let's bow down to gods that we make with our own hands of wood and stone and things like that. And if you say, well, I'm not an idolater. I've never bowed down and worshiped those things. Don't be so sure. Maybe you've not bowed down before an idol. Maybe you've never bowed down before the statue of a Buddha, but whatever you've loved more than you've loved the God who created you, that is what you worship whether that's pleasure or entertainment or money or possessions or whatever it may be, whatever you love more than you love the Lord, that is the thing that is your idol. John Calvin was right. Our hearts by nature are factories for idols. They're constantly inventing new ones. Well, he gets to the end of that and says, because of man's suppressing all these things, his judgment is revealed in the sense that he's given men over to their just deserts. Three different times in Romans chapter 1, we're told that men are given over to things. Verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. And wherever you see these things in a culture, you know that culture is under the wrath of God. Which tells you the United States of America is presently under the wrath of God. Because all these things are present in our culture. But then in verse chapter 2 and verse 1, It's very easy for us, because we're by nature self-righteous, to look around and say, yes, the outside world, they're bad. You're right, Paul. Amen. We agree with you. But Paul suddenly turns around and he looks every one of us in the eyeball and he says, it's you. You're the problem. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against your fellow man. He uses that powerful 
personal pronoun you. And he's using you singular like 30 times throughout verse 2. I mean, he's getting into our stuff. He's getting into our business. He's getting in our face. And he's saying, you're guilty. You are the one who is uh, deserving of condemnation before the judgment bar of God. That outside of Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. Only in Christ can we be saved. And so he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But remember what we've said here. It takes more than one witness to condemn somebody, right? So he's already called the witness of creation. The question is, there are two more witnesses to be called to the witness stand, and who are those witnesses? Those witnesses he's calling here, the second witness is man's conscience. And then the third witness he's going to call is God's commandment. That is his written law as given in his holy word. Notice what's going on here. Notice that in verse 10, he says that God will condemn both Jew and Gentile alike. He He shows no partiality. And he's about to explain why that is. How can God condemn Gentiles who had never received the written word of God or had the gospel preached to them? And then how can God condemn people who do have the word of God and have had it preached to them? So let's look through this, and I want to preach to you under two headings. First of all, we see the second witness take the stand, which is man's conscience. And then we see the third witness take the stand, which is God's commandment. So let's look at each one. The second witness, man's conscience, is called to the witness stand. Verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul is expounding the principle that he's going to then flesh out in the remainder of this chapter. Here it is. For there is no partiality with God. God's judgment, unlike yours and mine, is completely impartial. It's completely just. It's absolutely fair. He's not not a judge who shows discrimination towards one group and shows favoritism to another. He's a God who is equitable in all of his judgments. You and I, our judgment is always suspect, right? Because our hearts are deceitful. They deceive us in all kinds of ways. So our judgment is questionable at best. God's judgment is always according to truth and justice and right. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you thankful that that's how God is? Well, here's the thing. On the great and final day of judgment, God's sentence against both Jew and Gentile, against those who've heard the word and those who've not heard the word, it will be fair, it will be impartial, and his judgments will be given in the light of the, of, in accordance with the light they've been given. In other words, God will not hold you guilty for light he never gave you. He only will hold you accountable for the light you've been given. But not everybody's been given equal light. But all have been given some light. That's what the scriptures are saying here. Um, God revealed himself to Old Covenant Israel in ways he did not reveal himself to the other surrounding nations. Hold your place in Romans chapter 2. Turn back with me to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. It's how the psalm ends. He, that is God, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has dealt thus, 
He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. In other words, God has revealed himself to, to us by his written word in a way he hasn't revealed himself to any other nation. That Until Jesus came, that's how things were. So in other words, God's people of Israel, they had that revelation, but the surrounding Gentile nations did not. Even today, are there surrounding Gentile peoples and language groups that don't have the revelation of God's word? There are. Many millions don't have a copy of the Bible. Many millions have never had Jesus Christ and him crucified preached to them. That's why we need to continually pray, Lord of the harvest, send out labors into your harvest field because the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And so we pray this continually. But here's the thing. Will God judge the people who are in ignorance for light he never gave them? And the answer is no. Turn with me to one other place, and that's Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. The Lord Jesus says this, And that servant who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will, they will ask the more. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying that the judgment is in proportion to the light you're given. So that God isn't going to judge you for light he never gave you. You're accountable for light he has given you. Now, I do hope you're already coming to this conclusion and is going to come back to this at the end. There's none of you in this room who are ignorant of God's light. You have been given tremendous light. As a matter of fact, the United States of America has been given more light of the gospel than perhaps any other group in all of human history. So don't think to yourself, well, I haven't been given much light. You've been given tremendous light. But every man has been given a degree of light, and therefore the degree of punishment that each man will receive will differ based on what he knew, what he was given. So with that in view, let's come back to Romans chapter 2, because here's the problem. Every person, even the Gentile who doesn't have the word of God, who doesn't have the gospel preached to them, every last one of them has enough light sufficient to condemn them to hell. It's just some have more light than others. Notice what Paul says, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also, what's the next word? Perish without law. They're not going to be judged by the written law because they don't have it. But they're still going to perish for all of eternity. And then uh, uh, as many as have sinned in the law, that is they do have the written word of God, they will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You're saying, is Paul teaching salvation by works? No, he's not. What he's saying is this, in order to be saved by God's law, you have to keep it perfectly from the time you're an infant to the time you die. As a matter of fact, if you kept it perfect, you would never die. Right? Because the reason there's death in the world is because of sin. But the fact that we die is because we are sinners. So here is Paul saying, you'll be judged either if you don't have the law, you won't be judged with the law, but you'll perish nonetheless. If you have the law, you'll be judged by the law and you'll perish. What he's building up to is this, all men without the gospel are going to die and go to hell. 
But then those who do have the gospel, they hear it, they know it, and they don't submit themselves to it. They're more guilty than the others, and therefore they will receive even greater eternal punishment. So his first thing is to deal in verses 14, 15, and 16 with the Gentiles. How is it God can hold them guilty? We already know they have one witness against them. They already have God's witness in creation. But now Paul says they have a second witness that corroborates what creation has told them. And that second witness is their own conscience. Notice it again, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that means they don't have the written word of God in their own language, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. By nature, even men who don't have the written word of God know something about God's moral law. Now, when I say those words, God's moral law, what am I talking about? The Ten Commandments. They know something about the Ten Commandments by nature, even though they've never read about Moses receiving the tablets engraved in stone. Because, the Bible says, it's written upon their heart. Who put it there? Who wrote it upon their heart? God himself did. Because as the reality of sin has distorted the image of God in us, but nonetheless, it hasn't completely erased it. The, every person is made in God's image, and because of that, he knows some things about right and wrong. He has a moral compass within him that knows what is right. The Ten Commandments, as I've, you've heard me say so many times, we just finished a series on the Ten Commandments, but you've heard me say this over and over again. The Ten Commandments aren't a bunch of uh, random rules that Jesus came up or that God came up with in order to make sinners miserable. They are rather a transcript of his own immutable character. It is God showing us about his own nature. When God spoke forth the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai verbally, what he was saying to Israel was, Be holy, even as I, the Lord your God, am holy. As you walk in obedience to these commands, you're imitating me. You're imitating what I am like. Well, because men are created in God's image, they therefore have some sense of this in their own hearts. You say, how so? Well, they don't know who Jesus is if no one has preached Jesus to them. But what they do know is this. If you walk into a culture, say you find some hidden uh, tribe in a rainforest in some third world country that has never had uh, the gospel preached to them, never had the Bible translated in their language. When you go and get to know them, you're going to find out they have rules against stealing. And they have rules against stealing another man's wife. And they have laws about murder. And they have all kinds of things going on that nobody else told them. But how did they know that these things were right or wrong? They know them because God's law is written upon their hearts. Um, Steve Martin, and by the way, some of you are visitors, so I needed to go and clarify this. The rest of you know. Steve Martin, not the actor, not the comedian. There's a Steve Martin who's a retired pastor, and he's my mentor uh, in the gospel in so many ways. But nonetheless, that's the Steve Martin I'm, I'm, I'm quoting to. I quote him all the time. I spoke to him this week and told him, I said, you're just the most eminently quotable man on the face of the earth. But... Nonetheless, he, he has used the illustration that what does this mean that there, there is in, consci- in our conscience the law of God? What he, it's like going into an old graveyard. You ever go to an old graveyard and walk through it? 
And maybe there's headstones that have been there for hundreds of years. And you try to read what is on the gravestones, but you can't because the rain has eroded it so much. And you can see that there's some faint traces of something. If you took a piece of wax paper and a crayon, maybe you could see what it is. But it's faded, but it's still there. That's what it means for the law of God to be upon man's heart. Even though he has fallen and corrupt, there is still enough of the image of God left inside of him that he knows something about right and wrong. He knows there are moral absolutes, even if he denies it vehemently. He knows it inside of himself. Well, how do we know this? Because his conscience is aware of it. Men justify themselves or they lament their shortcomings. But even when men justify themselves, you think, what is it? There's a standard there that they're justifying themselves with. When they speak evil of other people and say, he did wrong, there's something, a standard by which they're judging them. And what is that? It's the law written upon their heart. Listen to our confession of faith, chapter 19 of the law of God, paragraphs 1 and 2. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. And a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first first four containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty towards man. In other words, the same law written upon the heart is the same law written upon the two tables of stone. It's the same moral law. So it's existed before Sinai, and it continues to exist today. But on the great day of judgment, the fact that men understand there's a moral standard that they are obligated to, That will be brought forward when God reveals the secrets of their hearts in Christ Jesus on the day of judgment. Now, let me try to put this into practical terms. A few years back, my oldest sister, whose name is Rose, she was having an online dialogue with an atheist and trying to give them the gospel. And this atheist came back and said, why are you telling me I need to become a Christian? Because my parents were atheists and I'm an atheist But after all, I'm a good moral person. I've never killed anybody. Now, do you hear what he's saying? He's justifying the fact that he's violated the first and the second commandments. He's denied there's a God. And he's denied that he has to worship that God. But how does he justify his own morality? He appeals to the sixth commandment of the law. I've never killed anybody. That makes me a good person. Why does that make you a good person? Who gave you that standard? You know, if the atheist is consistent, then he has to say that fascism was a really good idea. That the Holocaust and the extermination of the Jews was just a good start. He's a hypocrite the moment he says it's a sin or wrong or criminal to take someone else's life. Why is it wrong to take somebody else's life? Because they're made in God's image and because God's law is timeless. What that man was revealing, whether he knew it or not, and I don't think he was conscious of what he was doing, was, I am right, I am moral, I'm upright. Why? Because I live according to the standard, you shall not murder. So see, his conscience was there even though he's denying the existence of God. Even so it is with surrounding nations. They will be judged before the judgment bar of God. 
even though they've never had God's word translated in their language, no one's preached the gospel to them, they will be condemned to hell for all of eternity because they have transgressed against the light of creation and the light of their own consciences. Now, do you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to come back to this at the end. They're not going to be condemned at the judgment seat of Christ because they rejected the gospel. Because they never heard the gospel. They never had the chance to reject it because they never knew what it was. They're going to be judged by the light of God's creation and their own consciences, but they are still going to be judged. Think about that. Why do we need to pray for God to send out laborers into his harvest field for this very reason? Because they have no hope of escaping from hell and the judgment is to come if someone doesn't tell them about Jesus. So the, first, the second witness has been called to the stand. That witness is man's conscience. But then in verses 17 through 24, Paul calls the third and final witness to the stand, which is the witness of God's commandments. Notice in verse 17 and 20 that Paul says this, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. In other words, God has given you blessings he has withheld from the surrounding nations. He gave you his written word. He sent his prophets to you. They've preached to you. You've had this sacrificial system. You've had the Levitical priesthood. You've had all these things God has spoken to you in ways he hasn't. But here's the problem. The Jews concluded then, because they had all these external blessings given to them by God, that somehow that meant they were God's favorite people. Let me put it this way. We know there's only two kinds of people in the world, right? There's the saved and the lost. There's the sheep and the goats. There's the converted and the unconverted. There's the regenerate and the unregenerate. You can go on and on and multiply different kinds of descriptors. But for the Jews, they would say, amen, and we'll give you a further category. There's the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews are all the saved people, and the Gentiles are all the lost people. They concluded that if you're a Gentile, you're a sinner who's under the divine disapproval of God. But if you're a Jew born as of uh, the seed of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, given the law of God, going to synagogue, hearing, the, God, hearing the, uh, the law preached and proclaimed, hearing the prophets that that somehow meant you were already God's favorite person. In other words, let's put it this way. To the Jewish mind, the outward blessings of God were equivalent to the inward blessings of salvation. Let me say that again. To the Jewish mind, the outward blessings of God were equivalent to the inward blessings of salvation. To say that I'm circumcised in my body means I'm circumcised in my heart. That is how the, the Jewish mind thought. And so, in verses 17 to 20, what Paul is doing is saying, these external blessings have been given to you and has made you conclude very self-righteously that you're better than everybody else. And you can look down on everyone around you. Look at verses 19 to 20. That's what self-righteousness always does, doesn't it? It makes us compare one another to one another. I'm better than you are. He says, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge uh, and truth in the law. So in other words, we're better than everybody else. God likes us better than everybody else. We're not guilty like the surrounding world of, of not listening to God's creation, not listening to our own conscience. We have God's law. We know God's law. We know his word. We sing the Psalms. We have all this stuff 
and therefore were right with God. They presumed upon those things. But it's not being a hearer of the law. It's not being a knower of the law that makes you right with God. You have to be a keeper of that law. Notice what he goes on to say. Verses 21 through 24, he shows them, you're a whole bunch of hypocrites. Because you brag about the law, and you even teach the law to other people, and then you yourself break it. You don't obey it. You yourself, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He's saying, don't tell me about how much you know about the law. Show me how you obey it. Day in and day out. Here's the thing. You're teaching it to the Gentiles, but they see something you can't see in yourself. They see what a hypocrite you are. You're a hypocrite because you say all these things, but you don't live them. You talk the talk. You don't walk the walk, and they know it. They see right through it. And you know what it leads them to do? Look at verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as is written. You cause the surrounding Gentile nations to actually break the third commandment. You shall not take my name in vain because they see your hypocrisy. Why would I want to serve that God? You don't serve him either. You boast about him. You tell everybody else what his word says, but you don't obey his word. And because of it, God's name was dishonored and taken down. Well, we have more to say in this chapter, don't we? God willing, we'll return to it next week. But I want to stop here and make four applications to us. First is this. The first and most obvious application of these verses is, he's not a Christian who's one outwardly, but he is a Christian who's one inwardly. Paul's going to go there with the Jews and say, you're not a Jew just because you're one outwardly, and circumcision isn't just in the flesh. It's, he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of, a heart, of the heart. George Whitfield was once preaching to a group of people in the Church of England, and he said to them, and I'm sure it shocked them, I'm sure several were offended, he says, you know what, you're all a bunch of baptized pagans. Baptized pagans. It is entirely possible because we're so self-righteous and arrogant by nature, that we can assume we are right with God because we underwent Christian baptism. Because you're a member of a church, maybe you're even a member of a confessional Baptist church, and say, yes, I'm somebody, I'm above other Christians. Maybe you were baptized as an infant, as a Presbyterian, or in a Lutheran context, or in a Roman Catholic context, and think you're a Christian because you were baptized as an infant. Maybe you think because you were raised in a Christian home, that makes me a true Christian by osmosis. Or maybe I'm one of those homeschooled people. As we all know, homeschoolers are less depraved than others. Do I see any homeschooling moms in here? Uh, (laughs) um, Wait a minute. (laughs) But I've seen people, because I have a Christian education, because I was raised in a Christian school, I was raised in a Christian home, I was given a Christian education as a homeschooler, therefore I'm less sinful than other people. I'm an instructor of babes, a teacher of others. My question for you is this. Has Jesus Christ broken you? Has He given you a broken and contrite heart? Has He shown you your sin? And shown you what your sins deserve. And has that sorrow worked in you 
in such a way that it's brought you to repent of your sins, to forsake your sins and to bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to throw aside your self-righteousness and all your confidence in your ability to save yourself and to put your faith entirely in, upon Jesus Christ, resting upon him, depending upon him to do for you what only he can do and not trusting yourself because you can't save yourself, but only he can save you. Have you fled to Jesus Christ for mercy? Have you been born again by God's Holy Spirit? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you repented of sin? Have you repented of your righteousness? Have you trusted in Him alone? Because your parents can't do it for you. Your pastor can't do it for you. You don't get it by osmosis. It's something that you have to come before God. You must repent for yourself. You must believe for yourself. But the good news is Jesus stands ready to save sinners just like you. He is able to save you. He's willing to save you. He loves to save sinners. He delights in it. It's his joy to save sinners. Just this past week, I was driving back with, uh, from a counseling situation in a sister church with a friend, Pastor Brandon Smith, and I were riding home. And as we did so, he got a text of a young man that's been in their church for years but has never closed with Christ, seemed very indifferent to the gospel. And he says, oh, here's good news. And he wept as he read out loud, our son has just come to faith in Christ. And he gets to meet, sit down with him today, God willing, and talk to him about his conversion. But the Lord showing himself merciful once again. And I said to Brandon, I said to Pastor Brandon, I said, the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now. And isn't it wonderful that we get to rejoice on earth too when we hear those, those kind of stories. Whoever you are, Jesus Christ is able to save you. He's just as willing as he is able. You know, if somebody has the ability to help you, but he's not willing to help you, it doesn't do any good, does it? It doesn't help you at all. Jesus isn't just able, he's willing. As willing as he is able to save sinners. So flee to him to escape from the wrath that is to come. Second application. There are people groups and language groups living on this earth who've never heard of Jesus Christ. And they do not have the written word of God in their own language. They know there's a God because of creation. They know there's a moral standard because of their own conscience, but they do not know that the God who created them has a, has a son whose name is Jesus, who died for sinners like them, and who was raised from the dead for their justification. They don't know those things, and there's only one way they're going to know that, and that's if somebody goes and preaches Jesus to them. And if somebody doesn't go and preach Jesus to them, they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. Brothers and sisters, why do I say that? To make you feel guilty? No. How many of us are in this room are called to be missionaries? Most of us are not. That being said, we all have a part to play as God's people in the salvation of sinners. That is, to make Christ known in our own Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria by speaking of Christ in the spheres of influence God has placed you in, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, to, to use that every opportunity you have to speak of Christ and to point people to Christ. That's not just the responsibility of pastors. That's the responsibility of every disciple of Jesus Christ to make those things known. Whether or not our church has a formal program, if you will, of evangelism or not, we are all called to be evangelists in that sense. But that being said, we are also to be concerned for the spread of the gospel, which means praying constantly and daily, Lord, send out labors into your harvest field. Raise up men whom you are calling, not the church is calling, not men are calling, but the Holy Spirit is calling and giving the desire. 
and the graces of character and the gifts necessary to preach the word in a skillful manner to other people. To go out and two by two and plant churches domestically where there is no gospel witness. To go to unreached people groups and language groups and to, and, and to preach for them and to establish churches. We do this by praying continually. I'm, I'm loving that I'm hearing it more and more in our church. I'm hearing it on the Lord's Day. I'm hearing it on Wednesday nights. We're praying, Lord, raise up men in our church to serve as elders and deacons, but then keep on adding to them until we can, from that surplus and overflow, send some of them out into other places, which, again, let me remind you, I've been throwing this out to you. Remember that if sending them out is not a loss to our church, it's not going to be a gain to the people we're sending them to. Now, we're going to have to be willing to have some tearful farewells to some brothers who have ministered to us and who we, under whose ministries we have been encouraged by and to be willing to say we're willing to give them up so they can go out and preach the gospel. And then for those who are sent out, for those who are already on the field, we got to hold the ropes for them. Uh, I use that language all the time. Let me remind you where I got it from. Didn't pull it out of a, you know, just pull it out of nowhere. No, this is William Carey's description. William Carey said, I will go down into the pit, but you've got to hold the ropes for me while I go down. And promise me you'll never let go the rope once I go down. So we need to hold the ropes in prayer, in finances, when we're able to do so to help men like Sam Gunnup stay on the field. But also the third way you hold the ropes is to encourage them. And there's so many ways you can encourage them. Letting them know you're praying for them, for one thing. Hey, let me send you an email. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. That means the world to them. But we are, even if we're not called to be missionaries ourselves, we are called to pray for God to send out laborers, and we're called to hold the ropes for those who do. So brothers and sisters, when the Harvestville Prayer Guide gets published, which it will be again next month, next Sunday for April, snatch the things up. Snatch the things up like candy in a candy store because, you know, be praying fervently for the spread of the gospel because without it, men will be lost. Third application. Beware of the pride that theological knowledge can produce in you. I'm talking to people who already know the Lord. It's good for us to acquire knowledge. It's good for us to grow in biblical and theological literacy. We should do those things. Sometimes some ecclesiastical traditions, it's like knowledge is bad. You know, because knowledge just puffs up. Well, knowledge isn't bad. It's a part of maturity to get to a point where you're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that means you've got to be continually growing in your knowledge. But here's the problem. If that knowledge just stays head knowledge and that's all it does, it's not going to do you any good except to puff you up with pride. If you read theology books and and, and, and the Bible, and all you're doing is looking to reload your high-powered doctrine gun so you can blow everybody away on social media, this is not helpful. Social media, in my opinion, is forged in the fires of Mount Doom. It corrupts its users, and we're all going to be a lot happier when it's thrown back into the hell from which it was spawned. (laughs) That's my opinion of social media, okay? When I was on social media myself and I started saying, my precious, I knew something was up. (laughs) It could be a good instrument for truth, but so often it's not. So often it's an instrument for our egos and our pride. And if we're doing that, then it's not something that's pleasing to God. And we're not representing Him well. Brothers and sisters, what we want to be is experiential. 
Do you want to know what you believe? Write down what you do every day. That's what you believe. Don't just raise up a confession and say, well, here's the confession of faith. That's what I believe. Great. Do you live your life as if you believe it? Because if you don't, then you don't really believe it. Right? We're to be not just hearers of the word, because you can be hear the word and say, I know the word. All right, let me go away. I'm, I'm good. And we deceive ourselves. Right? We deceive ourselves into thinking we've attained to something we really haven't. What were we supposed to be? We're supposed to be doers of the word. To go away and say, all right, I know God's truth a little bit better now than I did before. How's that going to change the way I live on Monday morning? How's that going to change the way I live as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a worker? How am I going to be different because of what God has taught me? These are the things we need to bear in mind. So brothers and sisters, don't deceive yourselves. The Jews thought because they knew the law that they were somehow right with God and they were instructors of of babes. That's pride. Self-abasement is always pleasing to God. Because if we're exalting self, we're diminishing the glory of God. But when we abase ourselves, we start looking to his glory. Fourth and final thing for you who are in Jesus Christ, how thankful should you be every day that God has saved you? We get to where we take that for granted. We get to where we just think, yeah, okay, I know, the, I know Jesus. But we should give continual thanks to God for the election of grace. You know, when God chose his, his elect before the foundation of the world, he could have passed over your name. That wouldn't have been God being mean. That would be God being fair. He could have skipped past me and chose somebody else. Instead, he chose to put my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And my name has been there since before the foundation of the world. And if you're in Christ, so was yours. Think about that. How amazing is that? How we should marvel that we have simply obtained sheer mercy from God in Jesus Christ. We know the joy of sins forgiven. We're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus himself. We owe perpetual thanks. On the worst day, I can stop and say, God, thank you that I know you. Thank you that your son died for my sins. Thank you that I'm dressed in his righteousness. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives inside of my heart and he's promised never to leave me nor forsake me. On my worst day, I can give thanks for those things. We should never take those things for granted because if God gave me what I deserve, you know where I'd be right now? I'd be in hell this very moment. But God has shown such mercy to us. Let's not let him forget that we're thankful for all he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. I pray for any who are here who are outside of Christ that your spirit would convict them but also comfort them, overwhelm them with the love of God in Christ and to see that you are such a gracious and merciful God who delights in saving sinners and let them fly to you and embrace Christ with their whole heart that they might be saved. For us who do know you, We praise you and thank you for the gifts you have bestowed upon us, that you've lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk worthy of the name by which we are called for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.